Recovery Elevator, episode 340. I have to remain humble and I have to swallow my pride when necessary. I have to be well-versed in apologizing when uh, I've wronged someone and I have to be well-versed in forgiving others as well. And these were things that I did not do when I was in active addiction. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Mike. He's from Fort Worth, Texas, and took his last drink on September 20th, 2020. And I'd like to welcome Hillary to the team. Thank you, Hillary, for doing show notes for the Recovery Elevator Podcast. Listeners, most resources are accompanied with a link in the show notes. Hillary handles this as well as a summary of the episode. Thank you, Hillary, and we're pumped to have you on the team. And before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe Ari. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Cafe Ari almost immediately after I found it, and I was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things I quickly realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community, people all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun, For $24 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner if you request to be matched, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 10% of monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to meet you there. Okay, let's get started. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that puppy chow. Uh, that might not be it. Let's try that again. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off some of that applesauce. Damn, that doesn't sound right either. (laughs) Okay, that's a scene in The Office where Michael Scott is singing the Kit Kat song wrong. It's a great show. And if I recall correctly in that scene, they're even giving Michael Scott shit for not getting the song right. Guys, I've been waiting several years to tie that scene into the Recovery Elevator podcast, and I, I think this is my best chance, so let's just roll with it. So guys, we are incredibly hard on ourselves, and the point of this episode is to give you permission to let much of that go and to move the needle slightly on how you view yourself and the drinking. Yes, give yourself a break. And not even like a, yo, Michelle, take five, and then we'll get back into the game of self-loathing and shame shortly, but a permanent break from all of that. And now when I say all of that, I'm referring to this, hating yourself for drinking, not being able to quit drinking, for not holding the promises made to yourself, for drinking more when others stop, 
for drinking before showing up to a dinner party, for drinking by yourself after the dinner party, and then the shame and guilt that are contemporaneous with those statements. Listeners, all of that can go. Before I quit drinking, for years, there was a narrative that said, Paul, you fucking idiot, and then fill in the blank. And what I realize now is all of those vitriolic statements towards myself weren't necessary. So I want us to try something real quick. I want you to hit the pause button and do a quick inner body scan. I want you to look for an energy front that says you should be doing this or that. And if you're not successful at it, then we suck or something like that. Most likely some hint of this exists. Maybe it's a tightness in the stomach area or the upper back. I want to tell you it's not necessary. And here's why. You're alive. If you're listening to this right now, your heart is beating. Your lungs are taking in air. And you're conscious. You have survived. You just survived a pandemic, for goodness sakes. Over 4 million people didn't. Being born doesn't entitle you to health, happiness, and prosperity. I'm talking to you right now, millennials. I'm kidding. I'm actually one of you. But you have to do whatever it takes to survive. At all costs. We often think of bears and tigers as dangerous animals, and they are, but we, as in humans, are the most dangerous animal on the planet. We killed over 100 million of our own species in the 20th century alone. You have survived. You found a way to make it to whatever age you are right now. You developed skills, behaviors, habits, routines to survive. For some of you, you had to be small. You had to bottle up your feelings. You had to blend in and your physical posture mirrored this. Some of you, and this isn't your fault, grew up in such hostile environments that you didn't get what you needed as a child or a young adult. Your nervous system got torched at such a young age. You weren't taught how to regulate your nervous system at an early age. The casing around the human nervous system hasn't developed yet in toddlers, and this is most likely when a caregiver didn't give you the care you needed. And it wasn't their fault either. Please let's not go there. So you had to find other ways to self-regulate. My Little Ponies and Transformers worked until you had to leave your room for second grade. So listeners, I'll cut to the chase. You found alcohol. You used this spirit to connect with yourself, others, and it gave you the connection and safety you desperately needed for survival. You did what you had to do. Living in a low-level grade of fight-or-flight sucks, and it isn't healthy. You needed reprieve, and alcohol worked. Now, it doesn't work in the long run, but you found something that worked when you desperately needed it. Odette and I have a post-it note that says, nice job. And when we have a win, we send each other a picture of that post-it note. And I'm sending you, the listener, the nice job post-it right now. You found a way to cope, to regulate, to soothe, to function in a world that is filled with war, agony, COVID, yellow skittles, and more. So nice job. You're alive. And on top of that... Many of you have great jobs, earn relationships, and contribute to the overall well-being of society. Now let's cover anxiety and depression real quick. I love In the Wisdom of Trauma by Dr. Gaber Mate. He congratulates someone who experienced depression. Why? Because that's a mechanism that kicks in for us to go internal and find ourselves. Same thing with anxiety. Just like addiction serving a purpose, as we covered last episode, so do anxiety and depression. They are almost like the governors in life that kick in when we get really out of balance, just like an addiction. So give yourself a break if you experience anxiety or depression. Those are there to help you. Now, I want to be clear, listeners. I'm not saying green light with the drinking moving forward, not even close. 
I'm saying you found a way in the past to survive. And instead of kicking your own ass for that, let's stop for a moment and recognize the achievement. You're still alive. Okay, so you've got a drinking problem. You're addicted to alcohol. That's better than being dead, right? So here's the plan. We're going to listen to the addiction, anxiety, or depression, and we're going to have one paramount goal. And no, it's not to quit drinking. That's usually a result when we focus on this goal, which is getting to know and love ourselves. If we listen to the addiction, the addiction will force us to get to know ourselves. And let's go one step further. It forces us to recognize that self-loathing doesn't work. It never has. And we might as well love ourselves. Depending on your view of spirituality, if your soul is eternal, then now might be a good time to give yourself a break and start loving you because you may be with you for quite some time. If you haven't changed the screensaver on your smartphone to your favorite picture of you as a child, then please do so because that's who you're loving. That kiddo, and that's my inner Pablo, is still there and always will be there. When I have a bad day, and I do have them, listeners, I sometimes pull out my phone and look at that five-year-old kid with a cricket on his hand and say, hey, Pablo, I got your back, man. I'm not leaving you. I'm right here. I love you, and we're going to be just fine. Another reason I encourage you to cut yourself some slack is because this journey isn't easy. I recently did a YouTube video about is quitting drinking the hardest thing I've ever done, Link in the show notes. Thank you, Hillary. And the answer was yes. However, quick correction, because that's not entirely true. Not quitting drinking would have been the hardest thing. That decline was bitterly painful and much more painful than quitting drinking. Okay, so quitting drinking is hard. Locating all the fragmented parts of your personality and making them one cohesive unit is a big ask. And that requires every part of you. This is a challenge, yes, but also the most rewarding journey you will ever take. Here's a way you can give yourself a break. On this journey, the self-love is sometimes conditional or transactional. For example, you'll love yourself and you have seven days away from alcohol or a month. Does this sound familiar? The same goes with diets and the gym. So next time the voice comes in and says, Stanley, we're going to love ourselves next Tuesday because that's when we hit one year alcohol-free or something like that, I want you to ask yourself, why can't you love yourself and give yourself a break right now? Can we give ourselves some slack in this moment, as in when you are listening to this episode right now? Okay, you found the alcohol to survive, but now it's not working so hot. In fact, it may be killing you slowly or softly, as the Fugees would say. And that's okay. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And in addition, avocado toast won't save you either, millennials. I love avocado toast so much. And yo, Australia, why is your avocado toast so expensive? Like $23 expensive. It's worth it. I'm just honestly inquiring. So it's time to ditch the booze and find healthier coping strategies. The good news is these healthier coping strategies, they are infinite. Here are just a few. Meditation, AF travel, AA, yoga, hot yoga, goat yoga, music, ecstatic dance, you being you, talk therapy, Cafe RE, Recovery Dharma, EMDR, Brain Spotting, Breathwork Fly Fishing, Skateboarding, Plant Medicine, Ayahuasca, Join a Running Club, Float Tank Therapy, Acupuncture, Frog, Cat, Poodle, and Horse Therapy, and Goat Yoga. I think I said that one already. Oh yeah, one more, and Third Eye Blind Therapy. In fact, they just came out with a new song called Box of Bones. That's really good. Before we conclude, I'd like to say it one more time. Give yourself a break. You did what you had to do to survive. 
you are alive. The miracle of you is still here. And now we're finding healthier ways to ensure you'll be here for a long time to come. And before we hear from Odette and Mike, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature's safe and healthy CBD-based products are formulated to help you with the challenges of quitting drinking, such as addictive cravings, depression, anxiety, and lack of sleep. Learn more about these products at exactnature.com. As a Recovery Elevator listener, use the code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order at checkout. That's RE20 at checkout. And thank you, Exact Nature, for being our newest proud sponsor. Thank you, Paul, for that introduction. And Mike, welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for chatting with us today. And let's get right to it, Mike. When was the last time you had a drink? September 20th, 2020, which was two days before I entered a 30-day inpatient rehab in Northeast Philadelphia. You're coming up on your one year. I am. It's really exciting. It's a freaking miracle. It is so exciting. I feel like that one year milestone is so, so special. So really enjoy the days leading up to it. And I love that you use the word miracle. I can't wait to hear more. Can you let us know a little bit about yourself? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for work? And what do you do for fun? Well, I am from Fort Worth, Texas. I work in program management for an aerospace defense contractor. Uh, I've been married for three years. I like to be physically active by working out and running. Uh, I enjoy hunting and fishing, going to baseball games, playing with my chocolate lab and golden retriever, and just being as present as possible, no matter where I am in this new life of sobriety. Recent news is uh, my wife and I are newly expecting parents uh, to a little baby boy and uh, could not be more excited to have this uh, blessing for both of us. Congratulations. That is such beautiful news. And honestly, it just makes me really happy to know that your son is going to have a sober dad. Can you give listeners some background on your history with drinking? When did you start drinking? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your goals? And what got you to quit? So I started drinking in high school. As that progressed into my early adulthood uh, throughout college and after, um, I was averaging about a 12-pack of 16-ounce Coors Light Tall Boys a night. But uh, towards the end of uh, my alcoholism battle, uh, I had progressed to about two 12-packs of White Claws a day, uh, basically to the point where the only person I was seeing each day was the GoPuff delivery driver. Uh, as far as you know, when I realized it was a problem in my late 20s, for whatever reason, I started to log on my calendar how many drinks I was having a day. And I knew that wasn't normal. I tried tapering. I tried quitting cold turkey. I tried creating rules where I only drank on the weekends. But that ended up evolving into only drinking on days that end in Y because those were half measures which availed me nothing. I just wasn't fully ready to commit myself to sobriety. Uh, I ended up meeting the girl of my dreams and asked her to marry me. And, uh, you know, I was kind of under the impression that if I got married, my behaviors with alcohol would change. And while there are some exceptions to that rule, uh, my roller coaster relationship with drinking 
and the anger and the emotional baggage that I was harboring, unfortunately, did carry over into my marriage. Um, you know, I could go a few months at a time, completely sober, with sporadic involvement in my church. But at the end of the day, I was still what a lot of people label uh, as a dry drunk. The programs weren't sticking. My faith in God was lacking. And honestly, my only counselor that I consistently saw was alcohol. There was something about the idea of what being manly means to me that had always prevented me from being truly honest with myself and transparent with others. So even though it was killing me, I could not admit to my wife that I was having a problem experiencing peace, freedom, and joy, uh, and that I did not have a solution to fix it. For my rock bottom, I had quit my job that we had moved to Philadelphia for in order to attend a faith-based rehab. When I got back, our marriage quickly began to deteriorate. I was more prideful and selfish than I had ever been before. I was having amnesia regarding all of the pain that my drinking had caused and how badly it had impacted our marriage. So once I was back uh, with her not being happy, me not having work to go to, I ultimately relapsed and I was deflecting and projecting all of my self-pity and hate onto my wife. And we actually signed divorce papers in our kitchen. You know, soon after that, I watched one of my best friends come over and help move my wife out of our house. And I was basically left with two choices, to drink myself to death or truly swallow my pride and admit myself to another rehab to get the help that I needed. Wow, Mike, that is powerful. You you had a decision to make. And I know you shared earlier that your sober date was linked to you checking in. So was this September last year when you were faced with this decision and decided to go to treatment or was it another time? This was it. Uh, this was my decision not to save my marriage, not to be healthy enough for a better job, um, not to save my house. This was my fork in the road uh, where I was faced with a decision for whether or not I wanted to save my life. A hundred percent. And before I move forward and learn how your process was, the treatment and what happened after, I do have a couple of questions from what you shared about your progression. You mentioned that you started this log where you were tracking how much you drank daily. And I'm curious, did you have thoughts of, I think I'm an alcoholic? Like what even got you to log? How did that idea come forth? I think subconsciously, uh, since obviously I was having control issues here, I was trying to, to maintain my drinking, but slowly taper down because I knew I had a problem. But I thought if I just went through the process of uh, tapering, that that could solve the problem. That this was my way of trying to control the drinking problem without actually doing any of the work to find out why I was drinking that much to begin with. Yeah. And I know you also shared that, you know, you weren't going to talk about it with your wife because that didn't fit in your definition of being manly. So, I, I want to know and I want to ask, did, did anybody else know how bad your drinking was other than your wife, who I'm sure was noticing, even though you weren't talking to her? Did it, that definition of manhood that you have in your brain and in your mind prevent you from talking to a friend or talking to a family member? Was it a very like lonely 
process because you didn't talk to anybody or did you have a few people that you did vent to? No, it was pretty lonely. Uh, and I'll get into this more uh, later in the interview. But, um, you know, due to the family dynamic I was brought up in, we just didn't talk about this stuff. You kind of swept problems under the rug. You know, yes, you know, my family was aware that I like to drink, but they never really knew how bad it got. And I sure wasn't going to try to talk to them about it because I knew how it would be received. And it, it, it's no surprise why it took me so long to finally be the version of myself that was ready to settle down and get married because all the relationships I had leading up to my marriage all basically ended because of my alcoholism. Uh, and I never let anybody get close enough to me to get to know the real me. They only got to know the person that was numbing themselves to not feel the real me because the real me at that time was still broken and in need of uh, a drastic recovery. From the outside, what did Mike look like? From the inside, I can hear the struggle that you were going through and this having to put on this facade. From the outside, were you able to still go to work, able to, to still function? Were you just drinking socially? Or was there also a progression in your day-to-day -day activities and your lifestyle? I like to tell people that I was a highly functioning alcoholic until I wasn't. You know, I've got, uh, I've had great jobs with uh, defense contractors. Uh, the pay is great. You know, it, as far as professional success, uh, that fits the definition. You know, I've got a master's degree uh, from the University of Texas. I played college baseball. I had no problem getting dates with women. Um, everything on the outside seemed fine. Uh, and so for me, in order to maintain that image of confidence and success, uh, I had to fill myself with alcohol to give me that self-esteem booster, albeit artificial. All that success professionally, relationally, all, all that at the end of the day did nothing for me because deep down inside, I was still depressed and broken. And for the longest time, I, I used alcohol as that elixir that was supposed to make everything better. And it didn't. Yeah, I I've been very curious about people that we talk to here and just friends that I talk to because there's this like running quote about what's going on in the inside is going to be reflected in your life externally. And I think I think that's true, but I also think there can be long periods of time, especially for someone like you and I had a very similar situation where I was very high functioning to where like it doesn't add up to think that way because internally the struggle is very real, but externally it seems like we're still able to manifest a pretty good life. Uh, it happened to me. It happened to my husband, you know, getting promoted, getting new opportunities, having kids, you know, all of these checkboxes that are part of society's definition of success. I feel like that's what makes it so hard for us to admit that we even have a problem because externally things seem to be working until they don't, like you said. But I think there can be a very long chapter of this high-functioning performance. And because of the way that alcohol works, it takes a long time for the progression to get to a point where things start kind of going sideways. And that long chunk of time is extremely painful internally. It sure is. Uh, you know, no amount of 
worldly success can replace being spiritually bankrupt. And that's what I was for the longest time. And I didn't even realize it. I, I was putting all of my identity in how I was viewed by the world. I was putting all my identity in my in the approval of others, but it was only through finally getting sober and working the program and truly recovering where I learned how the damage on the inside uh, mm-hmm. and the void, uh, the spiritual void that played such a significant role in why I drank to begin with. That is such a powerful line, what you said about no amount of success compares to that feeling of being spiritually bankrupt. I, I love that. We're going to have to make it into a little tile quote for our Instagram. That's such a powerful statement. And I want to know what happened after you were at this crossroads, like you mentioned, you checked into treatment. And how was that first initial chapter of sobriety for you? How was going into it with a different mindset? And like you said, you kind of had to accept that you had to put your pride aside and finally be open to receiving help. How was that for you? How are you? How were you feeling almost a year ago? I mean, it was it was absolutely terrifying. You know, no person, you know, especially you know, prideful men, want to admit that rehab is like their last option and that they have to pursue it, or otherwise they're going to lose everything. Because I had resigned from my job. I had lost my health insurance. So I was at the mercy of some nonprofit programs in the state of Pennsylvania. And I ended up at what has got to be one of the roughest rehabs in the entire country. And I'm not going to name it, but I was in there with a lot of men and women that were recently released from prison there for time reduction, not necessarily to get sober. You know, my first roommate had just got out of prison for 40 years after committing double homicide at the age of 12. So this was a serious reality check for me. I just went from resigning from a $100,000 job living in a big house on the river with a loving wife, you know, all, all the appearance of the kind of success that the world tells you you should have. I just left all of that to spend 30 days with a bunch of people that, you know, the only difference really between me and them was, you know, circumstance that I grew up in. But at the end of the day, you know, you strip away convictions and we're all struggling from some type of addiction that got us there in the first place. Anyway, all that being said, the reason I bring that up is being at that kind of rehab, a no frills rehab where I'm literally having to keep, you know, both eyes open, it forced me to do the work. I know that these luxurious posh rehabs, you know, in California, you know, Florida, anywhere in the beach, they look really nice and I'm sure they are. But the way that I look at it is that's more or less a vacation. It's not reality. That doesn't prepare you to come back into the real world uh, where you still have to face your demons and face all the stresses of everyday living. So while I don't ever want to go back to this rehab, it was probably the best thing that could have ever happened for me because I knew for 30 days I had to focus on finding the root cause for why I was there to begin with. And if I didn't do the work, I could very well end up like somebody else in there that ended up spiraling out of control and 
it, it, it was just, it was an experience unlike anything I could have ever imagined. But to get back into, you know, what that looked like going forward, I did have to enter into a medical detox uh, prior to being admitted into the rehab. You know, I was suffering with insomnia, irritability, anxiety, nausea, sweating, increased heart rate. I thought I was going to have a heart attack, uh, hand tremors, you name it. I was certainly suffering from all of the side effects of side effects of alcohol withdrawal uh, leading up to my admittance into the rehab. Once I was there, I was put on a medical assistance treatment program where I was given a, a taper of a medication called Librium, which is a benzodiazepine that can significantly, significantly reduce the risk of seizures while suffering from alcohol withdrawal symptoms. And while I was on that, I, I also began reading this book that to me um, is second only to the Holy Bible, and that's This Naked Mind by Amy Grace. Uh, it, that book literally rewired my subconscious worldly appreciation and understanding of alcohol. And since I completed it, you know, I credit that for being a major catalyst in the initial lifting of the mental obsession that uh, I had about alcohol. Uh, that coupled with working with counselors who forced me to dive into unresolved childhood trauma really helped lift just years and years of compounded frustration and angst and anxiety and depression that was buried deep inside me because I had never, I had never taken a mental inventory or unpacked all of these feelings I had with anybody because as a man, I didn't think that one, it would be well received and two, I didn't want to show weakness by having to talk about all these painful feelings I was having. So while I was uh, in the rehab, on a medical taper, reading literature, um, having daily sessions with uh, professional counselors. Uh, I was also put back on an antidepressant called Lexapro to kind of help balance me out while my brain chemistry was going through significant changes. So upon completing the 30 days in the rehab, I was put on a medication called Vivitrol, which is the liquid-based extended release injectable suspension version of naltrexone. And what that drug does is it's the, the liquid form is a shot administered once a month that essentially blocks the pleasure receptors in the brain from receiving alcohol's pleasurable effects. So ha having completed the rehab, having a medication inside me that I knew would prevent the pleasurable effects of alcohol, attending virtual and in-person AA meetings, getting more involved with my church again and attending our bi-weekly marriage community group sessions. That did a lot for me. But one of the biggest God moments in all of this was the male nurse that worked with me during my required uh, medical detox at the hospital. He was in recovery. And when I left that day, he said, brother, give me a call when you get out and we'll grab coffee. And I did that. And this man ended up being my sponsor through AA. So I actually worked the steps with him in addition to everything else I just mentioned. And it, it was only then that I was fully committing myself to getting sober, but not just being sober, committing myself to recover and be the healthiest version of myself that I could possibly be. Hi, Mike. I, I hope you can look back and see how much work you were doing. I honestly think that 
when people start their sober journey, so much of our mind space is taken by how am I going to not drink today? I know you were in treatment and that's the case for some people, but like you said, you had so many other factors. Maybe you couldn't run to the liquor store after work because you were at this establishment, but you were dealing with a huge shift in your reality. Like you said, just by the people that were around you, your surroundings, plus having the intention of wanting to get to the root of things. I do feel like getting to the root of why the pain, why did we numb in the first place? That is so much work outside of just learning how to not drink. That's like a whole different bucket. And it seems to me like you entered this mindset where you were just in it to win it. Like I'm just, if I'm going to be here, I'm just going to cut to the chase and get to what I need to get to in order to not come back and to, and to get past this. And that's a lot of work. I feel like the first 30 days of sobriety, one of the biggest myths is you're full of energy and I was full of exhaustion because I was thinking a lot more. I was feeling a lot more. And it is hard work in so, so many ways. So I, I commend you because you did a ton there at the beginning. Well, it, it, it was only through swallowing my pride and being humble that yes. I was able to make it through those 30 days. And now I'm, I'm able to be where I'm at today. I know you said you explored this. So did you get to the bottom or the root of why was it that you drank in the first place? What were you numbing? What were you running from? Were you able to unveil that? Of course. Uh, this is kind of my aha moment in uh, recovery. So when I got, when I first got to rehab, the counselor I was assigned to, she asked me point blank, Mike, why are you here? And I told her, because I'm an alcoholic. And then she looked at me and she said, no, why are you here? And I gave her a, a few more answers. And she basically said, Mike, alcohol is not why you're here. And we went through this technique called the five whys, which the point of it is each answer you give gets you closer and closer to the root cause of why you actually drink. It, it's it's kind of like peeling back the layers of the onion. So after my counselor and I went back and forth using this five wise technique, I started to get there. You know, after reluctantly giving you know this some deep thought because it was in uncharted territory I was unfamiliar with. You know, I came to the conclusion after numerous counseling sessions that I was in fact in rehab because I had unprocessed, unresolved emotional and psychological traumas that I had endured as a child and even into my adulthood from my father and the overall family dynamic that I was brought up in, which caused me to have an inability to address conflict with help, healthy coping mechanisms. Uh, and that was, that was primarily due to my lack of self-esteem and self-confidence. You know, looking back at my childhood, I I've been able to pinpoint circumstances that eventually manifested into issues with my self-esteem, my self competence and my self-worth. And, you know, these examples included my feelings and opinions constantly being invalidated or dismissed. Uh, it included me never hearing phrases like, I'm sorry, you're right. I apologize. Will you forgive me? And this was really all for the sake of maintaining this idea of toxic masculinity, where that's just not something you did as a man. 
um, not even with your own son. You know, this was also done, you know, to essentially keep the peace in the house. So growing up in a house where I was never allowed to be told that, you know, somebody was sorry, where I was never allowed to be right, uh, it made me think that there was something wrong with me, like I was inadequate, like I was less than, like I didn't deserve those things. And by not, by not ever navigating conflict resolution in a healthy manner, by talking through a difficult conversation, so there was some kind of lesson learned uh, or growth from it, you know, it might seem trivial to some people, but that endless cycle of this and the aforementioned other examples compounded my internal struggles over time and eventually manifested into full-blown depression, which led me to seek out ways to mask my pain. And, you know, I think that this right here probably resonates with more guys than they would like to admit, but especially if, if you're a guy struggling with alcohol and you grew up in a family where you kind of had a, a rough, tough kind of dad that, you know, was always right, was never to be questioned. You were basically, as the child, you were just supposed to submit. Um, that can really do a number on your self-esteem. And if you're never allowed to talk about your feelings, if you're never allowed to talk about what's on your heart, and that lasts for a couple decades, you know, by burying that down, it, it's of course it's going to force you to, you know, seek out something to numb that pain. And for me, you know, growing up, you know, within that family dynamic under those circumstances and having the, you know, genetic makeup that I do, it was like a perfect storm of circumstances. Yeah, I mean, that all makes total sense. I think especially also once you enter the recovery arena and you start getting educated on the importance of validating feelings, validating experiences, the importance of talking through hard things. You know, I'm not a guy, but I'm a girl who kind of had the same dynamic at home. And it was hard because my parents were actually really nice. It was just that it was an avoidant type of dysfunction. So I share that feeling of inadequacy of like, am I supposed to even be feeling this way? And and we tend to repress it. So, I mean, I, I, as you were sharing, I feel for little Mike, you know, a lot of this stuff is inner child work that we end up doing. And I've been reading a lot about this because I feel like a lot of our needs just weren't met and it's emotional needs because for many of us the physical needs were met it's more of an emotional need and I've been reading about reparenting ourselves and now how can I heal from that and forgive you know it is so complex and now that you're going to be a dad you'll realize too how much you want to learn from this but also how hard it is sometimes as well it is so complex and I'm just really happy that you that you're doing this work, do you feel like you've learned to validate yourself and relate differently to other people now? Absolutely. You know, I, I place my identity now in my higher power. Um, I did want to touch on what you said about, uh, you know, your family and how like all the physical needs were met. Mine were too. You know, I, I'm not here, you know, trying to condemn my family or say that they were bad people. I was afforded every opportunity that a kid could dream of. It, it was a, it was a really good childhood, but with that, there were areas that were just completely void of of being met, you know, as far as my emotional needs were concerned. 
And um, it, it really just does over time manifest into some pretty um, significant mental health struggles for a lot of people. A hundred percent. And Mike, I want to know, you did say that the hard part sometimes about treatment is it feels like a vacation. It feels like a bubble where you're protected. And then once you get out, that's also a huge component of whether or not we're able to sustain these behaviors or not, because we're thrown out into all of the day-to-day stressors. So tell me a little bit more about what worked for you and what continues to work now to continue to stack days and to keep that momentum going that you started at treatment? Well, there's a saying that wherever you go, there you are. And what that means is at the end of the day, whether you've moved, whether you have a new job, whether you have a new relationship, whether you're at a fancy rehab or uh, a ghetto rehab, all you have is you and your heart and your mental health. And if that's not healthy, no, no external geographical uh, impact is going to make a bit of difference. So for me, you know, I start each day with a few cups of coffee. I pray, you know, I, I ask my higher power to uh, give me peace and to accept the things that I cannot change, which has given me a, a peace beyond my understanding uh, to this day. Um, there, there's, trust me, there's a lot that's gone on since I got sober that has not been peaches and cream. It, it, it's not, you know, just because you get sober doesn't mean life becomes perfect. Um, I've had some significant issues with my family since then, but it still hasn't caused me to drink over it. One thing that really helps me, I, I was blessed with a very creative mind. Um, I got my graduate degree in advertising. And since I can't really use that in my current job, uh, I use a recovery account on Instagram as kind of my creativity outlet. And, you know, to date, it's got almost 16,000 followers. And that account is used for me to just kind of document my recovery journey um, as creatively as I can in hopes that by me carrying the message of hope, that it will help somebody else that's suffering in silence. So that, that uh, outlet helps a lot too. I get messages from people all over the world asking for advice and helping, helping people helps me. Um, that's, that's the way that most of these 12 step programs work. And it, it's very, very true. I, I also, and this might also almost kind of be OCD, but I've started logging everything I put in my body into an app called my fitness pal, because for so long I put such destructive, damaging poison into it that now I, I try to treat it like a temple, as they say. And uh, I'm in the best shape of my life. I, I just, I feel electric. And, you know, I, I can no longer blame it on the pink cloud. Um, I, I'm truly very healthy. But I know that, that that healthy version of me isn't guaranteed tomorrow. I, I have to consistently, constantly surrender every day to my higher power. I have to remain humble. And I have to swallow my pride when necessary. I have to be well-versed in apologizing when uh, I've wronged someone and I have to be well-versed in forgetting others as well. And these were things that I did not do when I was in active addiction. And it's not the easiest thing to do even to this day. There's a lot of days I don't want to do it. But at the end of the day, you know, you, you can't, you don't get to take your pride with you when you pass. Um, you, you don't get to check in. You, you don't get to cash in your pride um, with wh- whichever higher power you believe in when you die. The, the pride more often than not does not yield the kind of fruit you think it's going to. 
And as a man, I think that's a very, very hard concept to understand. But good Lord, is it freeing when you finally understand it. It sounds like your definition or mindset around manhood and being a man and what being a man means like and what being manly is. How would you define that for yourself now? I would say that being to be a man is to be humble and to be willing to talk about your feelings. You know, there's nothing wrong with talking about what's on your heart. And for me, you know, if I want to be the best man I can be, that means that I'm going to treat people the best way that I can. And in order for me to do that, I have to be the healthiest version of myself that I can be because when I'm not, when I'm prideful, I project a lot of misplaced anger onto others. That's the way I was when I drank. Uh, and I didn't even realize I was doing it, but you know, that's why when you hear that alcoholics, you know, burn bridges and, you know, basically push away everyone that cares about them. That's generally why, because they project their inner hatred onto others when that, hatred is really directed towards them. You know, for my wife, for my future son, I, I want them to get the best version of me as a man. And like I said, that's only possible if I'm the healthiest version of myself, which means I am humble. I know when to ask for help and I ask for help when it's time to ask for help. And that there is no shame in asking for help because at the end of the day, we're all human. So many people need to hear what you just said. And I'm really grateful that you mentioned your Instagram. I'm going to make sure that Liz drops your handle because I know that it's an amazing account that the sober community in Instagram really appreciates. I know it's faithfully sober. And I'm just really happy that you've also woven in that service component. And you are open about sharing this message that so many people need to hear. And like you said, I know you you can hope that other men like you that had a similar experience can shift into this mindset, like you're saying, of being humble, of being open. It's just really empowering to hear that. And it gives me a lot of hope because I also have a boy and I also think about these things and know that our society needs that switch in order to continue to prevent addiction. You know, it's not just How do we help people get sober? It's how can we be even a little bit more preventative? And it starts from a lot of the work that you and I have been talking about on this interview of just handling emotions different than the way that we've been taught to handle them. It's emotional regulation. This topic clearly gets me excited, Mike. So thank you. And I do want to know, as my last question before the rapid fire round, how Has your relationship changed? I know you were on the verge of signing divorce papers and you went into treatment. Now you're having a baby boy. How has sobriety directly affected not just your relationship with your wife, but your relationships, period? I mean, my, my life is a complete 180 from where I was 10 months ago. Yes, my marriage has been restored. I got an even better aerospace job than before. Uh, and it allowed us to move back home to Texas. Since we moved back to Texas, I have reconciled with her family, who I was kind of at odds with um, the last few years. And we're very close. Uh, we all are humble, 
followers of Jesus Christ and know when to admonish others and when we should be admonished for our own behavior. And, you know, coupling my faith with working a 12-step program and knowing when to make amends, why I should make amends, knowing how to take a daily inventory, why you take a daily inventory. Uh, it, it just has filled me with this type of mental clarity that I absolutely did not think would ever be possible. You know, I said earlier, I'm in the best physical shape of my life. We just bought our first house. And like I said, to open the interview with, we've got a baby boy on the way. All of this stuff seemed like a fantasy to me 10 months ago. And the reason that we now have so much support and that I now have real authentic relationships with other men in recovery and through my church and with my uh, family is because, you know, I, I'm no longer interested in surface level conversation. Like, let, let's get to the meats and let's get to the meat and potatoes and let's really dive in. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about what's on your heart. Um, because, you know, when I when I used to drink all the time, me and my buddies, all we talked about was sports and women. That was it. That, that was as deep as our conversations got. And uh, I'll still talk about sports now. Don't get me wrong. But as far as, you know, how my relationships have changed and improved, you know, they've improved because I now have this sober, clear mind that makes me want to know more about others. How can I help serve them? Uh, and not just in recovery, but just in general. You know, it's not easy. They, they say it's about spiritual pro progress, not perfection. And there's days where I could be better. But by and large, my relationships across the board have improved because of my sobriety, uh, but most notably because of my recovery and how much better I understand myself. Sobriety and recovery, like you said, because there is a difference between being sober and being in a mindset of recovery. You know, it, it really does allow for a new life. It's scary to think about a new life, but when you do enter this journey, you are basically giving yourself permission to build a new life. And, and that comes, like you said, with challenges. It doesn't mean that our life is now perfect, but I love hearing how not only in your relationships, but in your work and in your faith, like everything just does reap the benefits of that work in beautiful ways. So I'm really happy to hear this, Mike. And we've reached the rapid fire round. So if you could answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Let's do it. What would you say to younger Mike? I would say that humility and the truth shall set you free. And I wouldn't know what that would mean at that point in time. But as I grew up and started to realize what was going on uh, regarding my internal battle, uh, that could have helped me uh, make some different choices as far as how I chose to cope. What's your favorite ice cream flavor, Mike? Pistachio. What are some of your favorite resources in recovery? I listen to a lot of recovery podcasts, um, obviously Recovery Elevator, which is actually the first podcast I ever listened to. I read the Bible. I have my church community. Uh, the Instagram recovery community has been a tremendous uh, resource. Uh, and again, uh, Quitlet, like This Naked Mind, is an invaluable resource uh, when it comes to learning more about alcohol and how it's an actual drug that poisons you. 
what is your go-to response when someone offers you a drink? Uh, I'll usually ask if uh, they have Topo Chico or any kind of seltzer water, just casually, and I, I'm never questioned. And before we depart, Mike, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if lying. Sure. Um, if you catch yourself Googling best excuses to call into work on Monday mornings because your Sunday fun days have caused you to miss so many Mondays that you burn out of believable, believable excuses, you might have to say adios to booze. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us on the show. I can't wait for everyone to listen to your story. I appreciate you. I know we'll be in touch via Instagram. So thanks again and take care. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Very well, Team RE. That wraps up our interview for today. Before I say adios, I want to do a little reading from my Daily Reflections book by Melody Beattie. It's been a minute and this passage that I read today really had me thinking. And I think more than one of you will also find it beneficial. Here it is. Stop doing so much. If doing so much is wearing you out or you're not achieving the desired results, stop thinking so much and so hard about it. Stop worrying so much about it. Stop trying to force, to manipulate, to coerce, or to make it happen. Making things happen is controlling. We can take positive action to help things happen. We can do our part. But many of us want to do much more than our part. We overstep the boundaries from caring and doing our part into controlling and caretaking. Controlling is self-defeating. It doesn't work. By overextending ourselves to make something happen, we may actually be stopping it from happening. Doing your part means you're relaxed and in peaceful harmony. Then you let it go. Force yourself to let it go if necessary. Act as if. Put as much energy into letting go as you have into trying to control you'll get much better results. It may not happen the way we wanted it to and hoped it would, but our controlling wouldn't have made it happen either. Learn to let things happen because that's what they'll do anyway. And while we're waiting to see what happens, we'll be happier and so will those around us. Today, I will stop forcing things to happen. Instead, I will allow things to happen naturally. If I catch myself trying to force events or control people, I will stop and figure out a way to detach. I hope that served some of you. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. Life that was lost a long time ago when humanity, instead of using.
Access the Ego.